Welcome back to the Reconnected Podcast. Today we are so grateful to share the studio with two experts in the field of exercise physiology and sleep science. Alexis and I are going to ask questions about how we can take care of our bodies as it relates to exercise, recovering from exercise, and restorative sleep. This episode is meant for a wide variety of people, whether you're simply interested in taking better care of your bodies, whether you are someone who is already exercising in a routine, uh, whether you're an athlete or even an elite athlete, you know, this episode is for you. So this information that you're going to learn today from the episode, it's going to be useful in your journey. So as someone who works with athletes in the field of sports psychology, I gathered several questions from athletes I work with, sort of like a frequently asked questions FAQs portion. Um, so I'm going to integrate some of those questions into the interview today. And just for a wider context, season three of the podcast is all about taking care of yourself. And so I'm so excited to learn more about the human body today. And so without further ado, let me introduce our guests for today. First, we have Dr. Barry Spearing. PhD. He has a wide range of experiences in sport and exercise science while serving populations ranging from Olympic and professional athletes to soldiers and astronauts. And Barry is currently the lead physiologist in the New Balance Sports Research Lab in Boston. So he works for New Balance. And Barry, real quick, can you just give us like an elevator speech about what you do at New Balance? You've explained it to me a few times, but it's always nice to get that little elevator speech. Yeah, happy to. So uh, the goal for any sports product, be it footwear or apparel, is to improve performance, perception, and protection. So we have a wide range of scientists. Um, my background's in physiology, but we also have people who have a background in perception science and biomechanics. And we all collaborate together to help make footwear and apparel that gives you a better experience while you exercise and train and compete. Wow. Uh, I think my sister called it the Willy Wonka of sports apparel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <Factory>. I've, <laughs> I've called it the Disneyland for athletes, okay, <laughs> but okay. the, the Willy Wonka for athletes also works. That's great. Love it. <laughs> um, prior to New Balance, Barry held positions at the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine, uh, the Nike Sport Research Lab, California State University Fullerton, and NASA uh, Johnson Space Center. Additional professional experiences include serving as sports physiologist at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, managing the Human Performance Laboratory at Marywood University, and interning with the New Orleans Saints strength and conditioning staff. Wow. Ultimately, these experiences have led to numerous peer-reviewed scientific publications, as well as presentations at regional, national, and international meetings. Our next guest is Dr. Nicole Moyen, PhD, and she is the Director of Science and Clinical Research at 8Sleep, where she leads a team that conducts all of the company's human research studies for new feature generation and validation. Uh, she obtained her PhD from Stanford University in Physiology, and has over a decade of research experience in both academic and industry. Nicole has enjoyed utilizing her research experience in thermoregulation and exercise physiology at various health tech companies she's worked at, including Fitbit, Kenzin, Whoop, which is in Boston, and now 8Sleep. And by the way, she's a former Division I athlete as a soccer player. I'm so happy to have you both here today. And of course, I'm here with my sister, Alexis, and we are going to dive in today. Uh, we're going to start with exercise. You know, exercise is the topic that, um, you know, clients that I work with, patients I work with, 
uh, it definitely comes up, whether they're athletes or not, right? Exercise is something that people have been doing for, well, as human beings, right? We've been exercising in one way or another forever. And um, we do know that it's uh, it's an important part of health uh, when we're taking care of ourselves. So let's start by just in general thinking about what it is about exercise that is so important for the human body, you know, to kind of think of it scientifically. What is it that uh, exercise does for the human body, both physically and mentally, that people should be aware of as a starting point? Because everybody wants to change on some degree, right? We all want to improve in therapy. For me, working with patients is about making changes, but change is hard. And a big part of change is understanding the benefits of change. You know, we call it the contemplative stage of change. And, you know, people think, is it worth it to change? What are the pros and cons? And so I want to start by asking you, what are the benefits so people can consider, you know, the benefits of exercise um, if people are considering it for themselves? Yes. So uh, Nicole and I are part of an organization called the American College of Sports Medicine. And one of their themes is exercise is medicine. So Mm. imagine there was like a pill. And if you took this pill, it made you perform better. It made your bones stronger. It made your heart better. Uh, and if you do it in the right way, it also makes you feel better. It alleviates depression. It does a lot of things. And all the side effects are generally pretty positive. So mm. if you had this pill that did that thing, doctors would prescribe it to pretty much everybody and everybody would want to take it. Um, the only thing is that pill is actually just exercise. So people kind of lose sight of the fact that exercise does so many wide-ranging things that's great for your health, great for your performance, great for your mental well-being. And so if, if we can educate the public on all the, the benefits of exercise and also educate healthcare providers about all the positive effects of exercise, then hopefully that is a good way to, to get people on board with exercising and just being more physically active in general. Yeah, I love that. Um, and uh, and Alexi, you want to make a point here? I'll just say, um, because exercise is so <clears throat> universal to people and it's like that magic pill for everybody, uh, I think something I've seen with patients is you just got to kind of find what fits you, right? Because it's such a, it's a lot of work to get yourself to get into an exercise routine. So uh, finding what works for you, what you enjoy and what fits into your schedule and your life is important. And even in schools, it's kind of sad that schools are taking away physical education um, from the kids and how important that is. So um, thank you for the plug. Exercise is medicine. Newsflash. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I'm so glad you brought up the idea of exercising as a prescription and especially related to depression. I'm so glad to see more of those studies, more in the popular media, talking about how really being able to move your body can help and heal from a mental health perspective on so many great levels. And I think that we miss the point of sometimes the answers are right within ourselves and we don't actually have to even put much into our body to be able to try to practice and heal ourselves. We can just try to move ourselves. So I'm glad you said that. And Barry, by the way, glad you're here on the show finally. Barry's been a a huge advocate and supporter of the podcast from the very beginning. So we're glad to have you here and to talk about this too. But, you know, can we dive a little bit more into thinking about exercise as medicine? Because we talk a lot here. We've had two episodes this season on anxiety and depression specifically. And those themes keep coming up of, 
you know, how do we actually get out of the stuck points in our life? You know, Jerry and I have clients all day long that sometimes report being stuck and not know how to get out of it. And we're grateful to be able to work with them. But oftentimes my joke, not being a medical professional, being in the executive function realm of things, you know, I said, you know, my brother will always prescribe, you know, <laughs> a little bit of movement, a little bit of exercise to be able to help you get out of that stuck point. Wondering if, if either of you want to dive a little deeper into that too. So I'll, I'll tell a quick story. So uh, <clears throat> a few years ago, I was a college professor at Cal State Fullerton, and I taught a class on intro to kinesiology. And usually the class ended up being at like the first thing in the morning. Uh, so after several weeks of the class where the routine is kind of settled in, uh, I had all the students show up and on their desk was what's called a profile of mood states. And you just fill out this little profile and ask questions about anxiety and energy and like all the good things you're feeling and all the bad things that you're feeling. And it, it just takes a couple of minutes. So they filled it out. And then when they were done, I grabbed my backpack and I unloaded Frisbees and balls <laughs> and all these things. And I said, all right, go play for 20 minutes. And they looked at me and were like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, just, just go play. Come back in 20 minutes. So everybody sprinted outside, grabbed all the Frisbees and the balls and everything out. Some went for walks, some had a good time, played games. <clears throat> then they came back and I said, all right, turn your paper over. And so they turned their paper over and it was the exact same profile of mood states. And so they filled it out again. I was like, all right, now, now look at the, the two sides. Does anybody feel more positive things? And everybody raised their hand. Does everybody feel less negative things? And everybody raised their hand. And I said, just remember that the, the only thing that I want you to remember about today's lecture is how does exercise make you feel? Because we focus so much on like performance and cardiovascular benefits and diabetes. That, that's all critical stuff. But sometimes the thing that gets lost is how energizing and positive exercise can be as an experience. So I don't know how much they learned from that whole semester, but I hope that was maybe one thing they just took away from that class. I love that. That's You learn from experience though, right? I mean, the things you remember, sometimes I'll teach, I'm like, what are they going to remember from what I'm saying? But you really learn from experience. What a, a beautiful story. Um, in my supervision class, we have eight people, eight students, and it's a three-hour class, nearly three hours. And I'm like, you know, at some point spontaneously, I just checked in with myself mindfully. I'm like, my body doesn't feel right. So I'm like, hey, everybody, you want to stand up and talk? And they're like, yeah, right. we just like all stood up and just continued the conversation about what we we're talking about. Makes a big difference. Yeah, I'll add to that and just say, I think the other point of what Barry was saying is like, you don't have to overcomplicate what exercise is. And I think that's a barrier for a lot of people. Like I used to work as a personal trainer too. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, I have to do 30 minutes and I have to do like this many circuits of weights and I have to lift this weight or else it's not worth it. And I think time and time again, even from a mood and, and health perspective, like even if you just get out and do something, like we tend to say anything is better than nothing. So even just getting out for a 10 minute walk, like you're already going to feel better. Your eyes are focusing on a bigger perspective. You're out in nature, hopefully out in nature, seeing some sunlight, right? And all of that is going to trigger different things in the body and help you feel better too. So I think like just remembering anything is better than nothing. And that's kind of how you start. And then over time, you're like, actually, I could walk for 20 minutes or I feel like I could jog for a mile instead of half a mile. So I think it's like, just start small. 
I love that. Such great reminders. You know, one of my favorite things to do is literally just to put music on and dance around. And I just shared this (laughs) because there's so many like neuroscience research studies that show that some movement is better than no movement. Yep. And thinking about that mind-body connection and being able to get things going. And, you know, sometimes it is as easy as just like moving your body around in some way. So I love the idea of starting small. Thank you for that reminder. Yeah. And so when we think about mood too, right? I mean, we're so technological now. So we go to our phones, we get that instant dopamine boost that we talked about last episode. Mm. And Alexis made such a good point last episode that, you know, if you do other things, you're going to get a longer lasting feel-good effect. It's not that spike like, oh, you saw something stimulating spike, you feel good, and then you feel terrible, like right after it. And so exercise, I mean, maybe you can quickly talk about this, we'll move on to another topic. But, you know, the physiological, uh, what, what happens in the body when you exercise, what, you know, in the brain chemistry and stuff like that, that allows that good feeling to last a long time, you know, there, as opposed to that spike in dopamine, do you, can you guys say a little bit about like what happens in in, in the body and the brain that allows for that feel good to, to last longer. Um, and, and because there, there's a book actually called Exercise for Mood uh, by Michael Otto, who's at BU. And he, his whole premise is exactly what Barry said, exercise because it's gonna make you feel good. That's such a good motivator. It's a guarantee almost that you're gonna feel better afterwards. So if anything's gonna motivate you, it should be that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I don't know the exact mechanisms, but I think that there's, depending on the exercise that you're doing, they call it the runner's high, right? And so you're going to get that boost of endorphins. But I also over time, your body gets used to it. And so it's harder and harder to get that high, but it also becomes something that you're just used to and you kind of need. So you feel kind of antsy or you're like, I need to get out and do something. Mm. There's also a lot of recent research more on, and you guys are probably aware, the gut microbiome and Exercise has been shown to improve the bacteria that you have in your gut, which regulates serotonin, Mm. which is important for mood, depression, sleep. Um, And then you also have the gut microbiome, which is regulating a host of other things, immune function, um, gut barrier integrity, um, so you don't have leaky gut. So there's a lot of other things that I think exercise is a byproduct, like as a byproduct is modifying other parts of the body. Mm. And at the very least, it's going to help you sleep better and better sleep is better mental health. So indirectly, it'll help that way too. Yeah. Great. Cool. I mean, the patients I work with, they they always say like, oh, it's not going to help me feel better. And then they do it. They're like, oh, it definitely does. (laughs) (laughs) Or or they'll say, at least I worked out at the end of the day. I felt productive. You know, when you get into the routine, you're like, at at least, you know, if you're you're depressed or something, at least I did that. It's something that's always there. So yeah. I think too, just being able to find that mental clarity, like when you exert your body, it kind of just releases all of the stress and tensions that you're holding on to. Some mm. of the the overthinking, the conscious thought that maybe you're you're replaying in your mind over and over again. It's almost like, and maybe you can talk more about the mechanisms behind this because that runner's high idea and being able to just exert your body often just quiets your mind. And and I always attribute that to you're focusing on something else, not just your thoughts. You're not just focusing mm. on the thing that you're worried about or the thing that you feel like you have to do or you need to perform in a certain way. But when you get out there and you just put it out there, it leads to this mental clarity that I think in relation to the the, the body-mind um, components and putting all the pieces together, I think it just like settles things a little bit and it allows your body to do what it does best. Yeah, I'd agree. And by the way, even if you're an athlete and you're like, oh, I work out every day, like this doesn't relate to me. You both, Barry and Nicole, you're both 
you know, former athletes in college. I like, would say they're still athletes. Still don't athletes. go there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't think you ever, yeah. I don't know. Maybe you don't compete anymore. But, no. <laughs> but once that structure is over, you know, you're not exercising as much as it used to. It's, you know, life changes. So if you're mm-hmm. an athlete, don't think this doesn't apply to you. It will come yeah. down, you know, at some True. point, this is going to come back to you. You know, you're going to have to structure your life around this because you're not going to have a coach or someone telling you to exercise every day anymore. It's true. I think that's like freeing in one way. Or at least I felt I was like, yeah. oh, I can go on a run. I don't have to time myself. This is amazing. Like, <laughs> And it took me a little bit to be like, I can walk during this run. <laughs> like, I'm not going to get in trouble. Um, but you're right. That structure is gone. And so then I think you just have to find what works best, which is true for anyone other, not just athletes, right? It's like, what do I like to do? Mm-hmm. It's almost like I had to f- refine what I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I actually don't like running that much, yeah. even though I played soccer. <laughs> and so I had to find other activities that I found enjoy like joy in right and otherwise it just felt like something I had to do every day and I think athletes feel like it's a job and so then trying Mm. to find enjoyment out of exercise is like a whole mindset shift yeah I just totally echo what Nicole said like I took a little of a of a step back once athletics ended and then kind of got back into it and realized oh man I kind of I miss this training part. So like mm. I don't lift as much or as often as I did when I played football, but I, I still really enjoy lifting now because I had a little time to like reset and, and structure it for myself. Kind of like what Nicole said. I think that's so important. And I love that you guys are talking about like these different parts of our life. And and I feel really fortunate to be able to work with people across the lifespan. I have, you know, students who are like eight or nine years old. And then I work with adults, you know, into their 70s and 80s sometimes too. And at all these different parts and points of their life where they're oftentimes they're working with me because there's a transition somewhere or something new that they want to learn and improve. So at all these different points in their life, they're like, well, I've been doing it this way forever. You know, I, I I don't understand why it's not working or it doesn't feel good or I'm not finding enjoyment in it anymore. And I think that's such a good reminder for the listeners and just everybody in the world really is that sometimes we need to take a step back and to reflect on, okay, what works for me right now? And what's my access point to getting there? So from an exercise perspective, I mean, what would you recommend to folks to be able to you know, take stock and take inventory and like, this is how I used to do it. And this is what maybe I need now. And let me rephrase that a little bit. Like how much exercise <laughs> is really needed, you know, from the physiology oh, that's, point? Oh, that's another great add-on. You know, like people are like, well, where do you start? I mean, there's no, you know, there's so much information out there. <laughs> so too. much. Or, or, and everybody's yeah. an expert, by the way, especially with social media. <laughs> oh, Everybody's yeah. an expert uh, oh, on yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I've literally, like, I'm a certified trainer. I've had people come up in the gym to me and, like, correct me. And I'm like, no, no, I'm the child. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. TikTok's not yeah. always right. One <laughs> yeah. um, starting place is just like, there's a lot of research that looks at the dose response between how much exercise you do on a daily basis and then like the health and performance benefits. Mm. And by far and away, when you transition from being the most sedentary to just slightly physically active, mm. you're on that steep part of the curve. So you get huge health and performance benefits just by transitioning from nothing to a little bit. And then as you progressively go more and more up that curve, Mm. the curve starts to flatten out. So your health and performance benefits, you still get more health and performance benefits by exercising a little bit more, but it gets to a point of diminishing returns. And then once you get on the extreme end of that curve, 
your benefits are much, much smaller, if anything. And then also the, the risk for injury starts to creep up. Mm. So the, the I would say, um, if you could imagine kind of like a, an upside down you, you want to transition from doing, you know, a little or something to moderately physically active and you get all these huge health and performance benefits and you enjoy it. But as you start to like really grind away at your training, trying to eke out every last little percentage point, you might get that, but you also might get burnout and you might also increase your risk of getting some sort of injury down the road. So I think unless you're an elite athlete, I say like focus on the peak of that, that upside down you, which is just get from like doing nothing to doing something and maybe eventually getting moderately physically active. I'm going to double down on that for a second because this is something I had to learn because I've gone from, you know, being a, I would never call myself an elite athlete at all, but from feeling like I'm really strong and exercising at a certain level consistently to having an injury or something else happen in my life that kind of like moves me backwards and then restarting again, oftentimes my mindset would be like, oh, I need to get back to that level like right away and slowly progressing was really difficult for me to like slow it down and take those smaller bites. So I kind of want to emphasize this, not just because it was difficult for me to relearn, but I think a lot of people could relate to that. Because if you have been able to perform or exercise at a certain level, like taking a whole new approach is really difficult, especially psychologically, let alone physically, because your body might still be like rehearsing the things you used to do, but you need to We'll relearn it differently. I wonder if you have any advice or suggestions for that too. I know you already kind of said it, Barry, but anything to add on or emphasize there? Well, I don't know if this is taking us off onto a tangent, but you you kind of mentioned the point of uh, training yourself up to a certain level and then kind of rethinking things. Um, one just kind of little nugget is once you've trained yourself up to a certain level of performance, the amount of exercise that it takes to maintain where you're at mm. is much, much smaller mm. than the amount of exercise it needs to take to get better. So another way of saying that is like, if you look at the literature and you want to get stronger, for example, uh, two to three days a week, two to three sets per exercise, those are kind of like the recommended doses. But once you've achieved that level of fitness that you're just trying to maintain, you can maintain that level of performance with one day a week of lifting and one set per exercise. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, again, just to emphasize, like the amount of exercise needed to maintain is much less than the amount of exercise needed to get better. And then one other just little nugget is if you want to maintain what you have, the really the one key variable is maintaining your exercise intensity. So uh, if it, when it comes to lifting weights, you want to maintain how much weight you have on the bar. That's how you measure intensity. And when mm. it comes to running, it's either, you know, you're running speed or you're exercising heart rate or some sort of metric that says, this is how hard I'm going. And I'm going to maintain how hard I go. I'm just going to do it less frequently and for shorter durations of time. Can mm. you say a little bit more about like the metrics that people should be using to try to determine what works best for them? Because outside of Willy Wonka's lab at New Balance. <laughs> I don't know if people really have a sense of what they need or even the tools to be able to identify that. Mm. Yeah, And so just to make sure I understand the, the metrics to... You know, like in terms of heart rate or mm, yeah. intensity and, you know, like how to get there outside of hiring a trainer and having somebody who really knows what they're talking about and doing to guide you. 
because you said the word maintain, right? Yeah. You yeah. Said, and I think that's the key word because we don't want people thinking like, oh, like I got to get to this really high level and maintain it, but you're not even close to getting there already yet. So I think, Alex, you're kind of saying, how do you monitor your progress to get yeah. to a point where you then begin to maintain? And how do you kind of chart that progress of the intensity level to maintain? So I guess in, in my world, uh, keeping a little bit of a journal to to get a sense for like, what what are you using for your uh, running metrics and your lifting metrics? And are those things getting better over time? So like, mm. even in, in my world, I'm, I'm just doing a mild little bit of journaling for uh, my daily exercise. And I, I can still see me getting better in some lifts uh, as far as like either the m- number of times I can move a weight or the amount of weight that I do move. Um, and then just the, the point that I was trying to make was once you achieve a certain performance level, the, the amount of exercise that you need is just much smaller to, to maintain that. And I, I also want to emphasize that like that's to focus on performance uh, you still need to to maintain your physical activity, go for walks, do other things to maintain the health benefits. Mm. But as far as just performance benefits, which is how much weight can I lift, how fast can I run, mm. how far can I run, um, those are the things that can be maintained pretty well mm. at, uh, following a, just a small dose of exercise on a weekly basis. Cool. So can, Does that answer your question? Oh. Sorry, good. Oh, no, I was going to say I can add to that of just like giving people general guidelines and feel free to jump in here too. It's like, Generally, if you were to start a running program or as we call it, aerobic training, right? Like so swimming, biking, running, it's going to take at least two weeks before you start to see some sort of changes, whether your heart rate's going to start to go down. So if, if you do the same exact mile at the same speed, your heart rate should be lower over time as you get more fit. Mm. And that will allow you to feel like you can run faster. So you'll start to notice like that route gets easier or you can run further. Mm -hmm. Um, The same thing is true for strength training. Generally, people just starting out, it's going to take like 12 to 16 weeks. And a lot of that beginning part is just like building the muscle movement and trying to understand like, how do I do this lift? And your body's trying to coordinate that signal from the brain to the muscle. Mm. And then once you get that movement pattern down, now you can start to increase weight and that's when you'll start to notice more strength gains, as we call it, where your muscles might start to get bigger, et cetera. And you can do heavier weight, more reps. Um, and so like to Barry's point, if you are doing an exercise and you say, I always do three sets of 10. And at the end of those 10 reps, it still feels like you could do more. You got to go up and wait. And that's one way to know you're improving. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's that's an easy gauge versus like definitely journaling is great. But if people don't want to track things, I think we're always tracking so many things today. It's just kind of like tuning in with yourself. Like, can I push myself harder? Can I run faster? Did this feel easy when I finished this set? If so, like, let's go up and wait or let's push harder. I think that's so important. And just monitoring the progress, being able to check in with yourself and to remember, you know, one of the biggest themes that we have on this podcast is that it's not always about the end goal. It's really about the journey. It's really about the process and the process, you know, sometimes depending on the day, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, depending on how much sleep you get, depending on other resources or any other inputs of energy sources that allow for you to work harder at different stages of your day or your week. I think all of that is really important for us to take stock in. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks both for both of you to say that. Great. Okay. So, so we're talking about getting to a higher level of intensity with exercise and maintaining that. So what are some things that people can do um, just to um, take care of their bodies as they're doing this? 
you know, rolling certainly has become a thing. By the way, was rolling a thing when we grew up? Hey, can you explain? Can you explain rolling for a second? <laughs> Um, uh, um, no, like roll, uh, foam rolling. So, foam rolling, yeah. So foam rolling. I, I really don't remember that being a thing when we grew, when we were no, growing no, up. No. <laughs> yeah. So uh, foam rolling for the the listeners is uh, usually it involves like a a cylinder of foam and you lay on it and put your body weight on it and start to roll along certain muscle groups. So like your hamstrings or your lower back, and it's like it's like a, your own personal massage. So if like when we were young, you'd, you'd see research studies on, hey, does giving you just getting a massage between workouts like enhance your recovery mm. and help you get back to training more quickly? And massages are very time and financially intensive. So not everybody can afford a massage, but most people can afford a $10 piece of foam. And so if you uh, can use that foam like your own personal massage, then does it provide an advantage? I haven't looked too closely at the, the 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 numbers, the science behind it, but just all you, anecdotally, it just seems to be a very popular trend. Like you, if you go into a a, a fitness uh, place, you'll see people rolling before and after exercise as kind of a way to prepare their body to lift, to loosen up, kind of like as a supplement or a surrogate for stretching. And then after they lift, just as like a cool down kind of recovery process. And then in between days of training, they'll also use it as a way to hopefully uh, expedite the recovery process. Um, so lots of people use it. Very popular. I just can't tell you. Uh, I haven't looked to see if there's like numbers behind whether or not it works. What's the difference between rolling and stretching? Yeah, like, you uh, so stretching, uh, like physiology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, is, so what does it do that's different? It, stretching would be like intended if your your muscles are like bundles of tissue. Uh, some of it is muscle itself, and some of it is connective tissue. So connective tissue is what connects your muscles to the bone. So mm. when your muscles contract, the connective tissue pulls on your bones, and that's what causes your joints to move. That's how human motion works. Mm. So stretching is intended to elongate, so to make longer the the muscle and connective tissue to give you more range of motion. Um, uh, the massage slash foam rolling, I think uh, what people anecdotally report is like maybe there's a little bit of binding around the connective tissue and the muscle. Um without diving too deep into the anatomy, it's tended to maybe relieve that binding so that the muscle and connective tissue can operate a little bit more efficiently. So uh, it might not, uh, another way of saying that, just in when people go to get a massage, uh, if somebody starts rubbing on your back, they might notice you have a big knot. So that knot is like binding of the connective tissue in the muscle. And so the massage is intended to relieve that knot Foam rolling is intended to do the exact same thing, kind of relieve those knots. So it might might not actually elongate your muscles, but by relieving that knot, it allows your muscles to kind of go through their natural range of motion a little easier, a little bit more pain-free. Love it. Definitely has helped me. Um, yeah, particularly my hip flexors. It's a hip flexor has been like an issue for me, so rolling has been great. Um, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about more about uh, just recovery from exercise after? I mean, I guess, you know, stretching and rolling is something you do. Uh, tell us about that. And uh, before I ask you that question, I had a quick question from uh, a parent that I work with who wants to know 
what are some things that you should do after 40 <laughs> that are good for exercise? <laughs> like what are the health benefits or things that would be like maximizing your time for exercise? For health benefits? <laughs> Uh, since, uh, I'm well above 40, I will <laughs> offer my own personal anecdotes. Uh, so if I compare like my training now versus my training when I was in my twenties, I think, uh, for me, I, I still like to train hard and training hard definitely improves performance, but I just do that less frequently um, so if I want to maintain or even get better, if I can, then really a, a key is just being able to train hard. But I think what I find is either I can't, or I don't want to train really hard on back-to-back days or, or many times over the course of the week. So I just got to be kind to my body and give myself some space to recover. And that doesn't mean that on my off days, I'm doing nothing and just sitting around. I'm still being active. I'm like, like Nicole said, like I go for more walks now as opposed to hard runs. Um, I just do things that are keeping me physically active, but at a, at a lower level. And uh, in general, like being active in between uh, strenuous training bouts, that, that does help with the recovery process. Um, so it, it just, I'd say to summarize, I train, I try to train just as hard, but just not as often um, and I like to do lower intensity stuff in between hard training bouts to kind of help with that recovery process. Okay, quick question: uh, the, the the term "weekend warrior" uh, is something, <laughs> right? Is, is that healthy for people? No. Like they'll just like on the weekend, just like go real hard playing like bas- pick up basketball when they're like fifty years old or something, or like, but they don't do anything else during the week. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, I think. There's good data to say that you need to prepare your body for those types of things. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're a weekend warrior and you've been sedentary for a while and you jump straight into a rough game of basketball or what choose your sport, the chances of getting injured are higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also you're going to be, even if you don't get injured, you're going to be really sore for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And I can say that from personal experience. Like I, if I go play like flag football, all of a sudden I'm using muscles that I've never used or haven't been using for a long time. So I just get very sore. So I would say even if, if your goal is to be a quote weekend warrior, meaning that you do intense physical stuff on the weekends, I would, my two pieces of advice would, would be like, give yourself about 12 weeks to prepare up for that. Cause that gives your, mm. not only your muscles and your bones, but also your connective tissue some time to adapt to that stress. Mm-hmm. So that way, when you jump right in, your chances of injury have maybe decreased slightly. And then another thing that'll do is the, the uh, by preparing your body, the, the severe soreness will be alleviated a little bit. And then the other thing would be, it's not just showing up on the weekends, but it's doing a little something during the week to maintain and prepare your body for those intense bouts of training or exercise or competition or whatever. Jerry, I feel like you're speaking to so many of our family members in asking (laughs) that question Um, because we have like a very like athletic family who love to play basketball and all these things. But sometimes it's like once a month during the summer when everybody's around and it scares me. (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody's in the best shape all the time. But I'm wondering if you guys could talk a little bit to like the cardiovascular implications of that too, not just on like you're going to be sore. I don't know if you are familiar with that data and research, but I don't know about the weekend warrior like 
data, but in general, like I, like I mentioned, it takes like two weeks to start seeing improvements in cardiovascular changes and it can take even longer to see, you know, long-term changes. And sadly we lose it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So if you Mm. start to get, and I think that's the frustrating thing about exercise for most people is like Barry's right that you can easily maintain it. But even if you take a week off, like within three to four days, you're already starting to lose Mm. like a lot of adaptations that you had where you had this lower resting heart rate, um, your muscles are stronger, right? You have all these like adaptations that your body goes through when you start training and those are lost pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You can get them back faster if you've already had that foundation, but it is frustrating and it can ebb and flow pretty quickly and it takes longer to gain it than to lose it. Um, so I think if people are losing it like or not consistent and trying to maintain it, it's going to be really difficult. Um, I don't know if you're implying like, People could have a heart attack or something by going potentially, out. Potentially, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about people who maybe are not exercising at all, and then yeah. all of a sudden just jumping right back into it. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if that. I, I, hopefully, they would rate limit themselves. Like, you, you would hopefully, hope so. they would you notice so. that they're not feeling yeah. well and their heart's pounding, and they they need to take a break. But I'm thinking of even yeah. like the athletic mindset where people are like, "Well, I used to be an athlete like this, so I could just jump right yeah. back into it and, yeah. and perform at that level again." Yeah, totally. You, totally. You heard it here. So if you're going to be a weekend warrior, <laughs> stick to Wii Sports. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I'll add, though, over 40 is like really important for women and bone density. Mm-hmm. Um, so osteoporosis osteopenia is really prevalent and so keep continuing to strength train um and i think there's one study that showed like just doing 10 squat jumps a day was beneficial in maintaining bone mm. density oh, for wow. women not i don't think a lot of people like to squat jump yeah but, i was gonna say not my favorite <laughs> but you need that kind of like loading on your bone in order to keep that um that bone density maintained and so that's really important I imagine that's also helpful with like balance and, you know, being able to catch yourself or get back up if, if yeah. you fall or something like that. Too. Yeah. And that's something they really mention a lot with like aging research. Yeah. If you read that, it's it's like they call it activities of daily living. Like, do you have the cardiovascular fitness level or muscular strength to be able to do just activities around your house? Like mm. reach up, like a lot of overhead movement gets lost as you age. And so mm. you can't reach up in the top cabinet to get something you used to be able to get. You can't open a jar. You can't lift your groceries. I mean, that's further down the the road, right? But if you think about also just maintaining fitness to do your normal activities in life that you want to do, I think that's also a good perspective to take. Yeah, I I know you want to get into the recovery portion of it. And I know you have another question, Jer, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about like, not just for people who are getting older, we see so many young people, especially having more of a sedentary lifestyle, yeah. especially with COVID, a lot of people kind of gravitated to the couch or working from home and sitting at their desk and video I, games, video yeah. gaming, like all these different things that are so prevalent in our society where we're very much in a seated or laying down position. I mean, we see it all the time with our clients, yeah. especially um, not to judge or knock on it, but just to think about the physiological implications of that. I wonder if you guys can speak a little bit more to that specifically. Yeah, there's there's research showing that there's some research calling sitting the new smoking. Yes, I heard yeah, that. Yeah, so <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that. And there's some recent research even showing like if you go out and do like 30 minutes of intense exercise, but then you sit the rest of the day, that's mm-hmm. equally bad. Mm. So it's best to just kind of maintain some movement throughout the day, right? And so I think that's where a lot of these wearable trackers will have like reminders to move every hour and kind of get you moving around. But mm-hmm. I think I like to think of the example of like our our grandparents where they didn't do these like regimented exercise programs. Mm-hmm. Like I can't think of very many older adults in their 80s who like grew up like 
doing mm. exercise every day, right? But they're generally moving and doing things. They're not like sitting for eight hours a day. Good point. And they, I feel like for the most part, are generally aging fairly well and, and physically healthy. So I think that's kind of the model I think of sometimes of yeah. just like trying to move, as Barry was saying, like just move throughout your day and it doesn't always have to be this structured routine. Yeah, and if you are in the Netflix mindset, there are some really great <laughs> documentaries on like the Blue Zones where yeah. they talk about, yes. you know, yeah. people who are gardening and yeah. they're just getting out in their community mm-hmm. and they're moving their bodies yeah. and it, it, it leads to longevity, whether or not there's a direct correlation just with that, but yeah. there's a lot of health benefits to it too. Definitely. So yeah. Yeah, whenever I retire, I'm definitely having a garden. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It's one of my favorite things to do. I, I consider it my exercise sometimes That's when I'm good. gardening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a basketball hoop. Um, <laughs> Nicole um, and Barry, can you real quick just comment on this phenomenon of the pre-drink? Um, mm. So, and it, I, I want to kind of say it lightly, but it's also a very serious topic that like kids are really getting uh, really, like there's really huge risks to, to doing it in certain ways. Can you share a little bit about it? Yeah. So I'll, explain what it is too. Sure. So um, pre-drinks are usually drinks that are highly caffeinated and that may have some other ingredients that may or may not even do much. So like uh, high doses of like B vitamins as an example. Um, so in the sport supplement world, it, I, it, it's been a while since I've read this, but there are some supplements that legitimately work. So like, mm. If you take a little bit of caffeine uh, before you exercise, you can exercise a little bit longer, a little bit harder. If you take a little bit of creatine after your, before or after you exercise, your gains in performance or muscle mass might be a little bit better. And there might be some other supplements that maybe do something, but like nutrition, general nutrition, creatine, caffeine, pretty good information to say that they're, they're relevant. Um, but the concern I think that you're driving towards is getting massively high doses. So instead of taking, uh, like one scoop of their pre-drink supplement or one can of their pre, sorry, their pre-competition supplement, they're doing multiple cans or multiple scoops. And now they're, they're taking this mindset that, Hey, if, if a little bit is good, more is better. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me to talk about that, but just the, there are so many things in this world where that is not accurate. <laughs> so mm. uh, more can definitely be uh, have some negative consequences. So like, I think uh, like psychological indicators can get like anxiety specifically, like if you're taking way too much caffeine, like you can feel anxious. Mm. Um, and then I think there's also some uh, reports of people getting, you know, sued or whatever, because all of a sudden when people are taking a supplement that a little is good, but more is worse, um, that, that can have some negative consequences. So another way of saying Mm -hmm. that is a little bit of caffeine can make you exercise a little bit longer, but there is a risk by going too far beyond that, a little bit of caffeine approach. And a lot of those aren't regulated either. Yeah. Like a lot of the drinks you just buy from a gym or wherever, they're de- like there's no regulatory anything on them. I was going to say that too because Dr. Wu on our previous episode um, talked about how melatonin isn't FDA approved or really yeah. regulated, right? Yeah. So you never know how much of the yeah. thing you're putting in your body really you're getting mm-hmm. because even in a package or a pill form, like it might say it's one amount, but it really might be a different amount yeah. because there is no regulation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And the the other thing too, um, 
you know, like caffeine, it could function as a stimulant, which can help you to kind of like zone in and focus a little bit differently. But to your point, too much of it can really kind of dysregulate you in different ways and lead to other um, potential implications that could work in the opposite direction of what you're yeah. trying to achieve. So stimulants, right? I mean, in, in psychiatry, like Adderall and, and different ADHD supplement or medications are stimulants. But before you get prescribed that, and by the way, there's a lot of people who take this, like when they're not even prescribed it, right. it's dangerous. Yes. Mm-hmm. Too much caffeine could be dangerous mm-hmm. because, and, and you get screened because it could be bad for your heart. Mm-hmm. And you have to know if your heart is able to take it or how much you should take for your heart. So they, they do testing for that. So, you know, I'm concerned about the, the, the impacts of the heart with something that can stim- have be a stimulant in that way. And also the psychological factors, like Barry was mentioning, like if you're going to hyper-focus on something, same goes with ADHD medications. I hear all the time from my clients that, you know, it, it will help you focus. It doesn't necessarily tell you what you're going to focus on. <laughs> so you might be focused on like these worry thoughts of like, how am I going to do? Am I going to do well? And that can get in the way of your performance and you actually working towards your uh, physiological goals too. Yeah. All right. So we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Can I, uh, you know, I do want to talk about energy. So um, in the sports psychology world and working with athletes, um, you know, there's a risk of eating disorders. Um, it's not just for females. It also could be for males. Although um, I, I do want to just point this out um, in terms of energy, right? And, and, and so much of uh, exercise requires energy. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about this. There's something that a term that has been called Relative energy deficiency in sport, RE, uh, red S, uh, which essentially is what happens when athletes, um, especially elite athletes, um, you know, are not fueling their bodies enough. And, and unfortunately, you know, people can come down with an eating disorder where they restrict how many calories they're getting in their bodies. And it could lead to poor health, um, lack of energy. It could uh, have reproductive health issues, bone density issues immunity issues, metabolism issues, cardiovascular health issues, psychological issues, and so forth. Um, and so this is really particularly in, in sports like uh, that, that kind of idealize this uh, particular uh, thin ideal, which is societally called the thin ideal, meaning that, you know, particularly with women, like, you know, the, 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 the perfect body shape is very thin, which is, you know, first of all, it's, it's, it's completely biased and it's not accurate. Um, but uh, some sports like gymnastics, figure skating, diving, uh, lightweight rowing, wrestling, where where the body uh, is manipulated through calories, right? And so uh, maybe you can share a little bit about, you know, the importance of energy and calories as it relates to um, exercising, you know, even for the, even if you're not an athlete, you know, someone who's just exercising. Yeah, so uh, all great points. So uh, to take a step back historically, there was this phenomenon that scientists observed, uh, and they called it the female athlete triad. Mm. And so it was triad, meaning there are three things that happen. First, uh, a female would eat less calories than her body required because you have a your body just at rest requires a certain amount of calories. And then as you train harder and harder and more and more, you need more and more calories or energy to support that. So uh, the pillar number one of the triad was low energy intake or low energy availability. Mm. Then pillar number two is the consequence of that, which is disruptions in female reproductive hormones. So mm. like estrogen as, as one example. And um, cause that takes you straight to, to pillar number three, estrogen has um, really critical impact on bone function. So pillar number three was uh, uh, 
diminished uh, bone mineral density or bone strength. And it was kind of like this downward spiral that as people exercised more and more and restricted their eatings more and more, all of a sudden you have this deficiency of energy and then that has negative impact on reproductive hormones and that takes you into bone and performance and other physiological problems. So that, that's that been something that's been studied for, for decades now. And then just to expand our aperture a little bit, the, that, that the female athlete triad has been kind of uh, changed to red S, as you just described, the relative energy deficiency. And part of the reason, I believe, is because they wanted to capture that this is not just a problem in females, but mm-hmm. it, the same consequences can hold true in males as well. So they just wanted to to remove the, the, the name phys- female and just say, hey, this is a problem for every athlete who trains very hard or anybody who restricts the amount of energy in relationship to their energy output, which is exercise. So that's, that's kind of my perspective on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can just talk from like a high level. So when you're when you're exercising, if you're doing something that requires energy really quickly, like say you start going for a run or a sprint, your body's going to use what it has readily available, which is mostly the glucose or carbohydrates in your in your bloodstream. And then it's going to try to mobilize the carbohydrates from your muscles that we store in there, right? And then if you're doing some low intensity exercise, like fat um, walking, for example, or cycling at a decent, like a moderate pace, your body has more time to pull fat. Fat takes a long time to mobilize. And then protein is usually like the very last thing that we'll use. But imagine that these athletes aren't eating much, right? They don't really have much carbohydrate reserve. So their body is trying to compete or trying to do these things at these really intense levels, and they don't have the energy to do that. So it's going to lead to injuries, number one, right? Number two, Mm. they just can't meet that same performance level because they don't have anything to pull from. And then when they're recovering, their body's also in this deficit. So it's starting to use the protein or the muscle itself for energy, which is never a state we want to be in if you want to perform at your best and and grow muscle. You know, I've seen in the literature one uh, one article at least a while back, and it hit me. It said, you know, eating disorders is kind of like an addiction. It's like a short-term, quote-unquote, benefit with very long-term consequences you know the way that people use a substance um, that makes them may perhaps feel good in the moment but is long-term really detrimental yeah and it does remind me of that what you're saying like maybe like you're a gymnast and you can perform really well that night yeah but over the long run even like months or years like for, for your future right it's going to be very detrimental so it doesn't really make sense logically if you think about it that way yeah yeah. And I think that's the spiral a lot of athletes get into right it's like a runner they're like oh if I lost five pounds and I made my, my speed was faster, right? There is a certain benefit to being a certain weight for a lot of competitive sports. But then if you have this mentality of like, oh, I just need to lose five more because then I'll shave another couple seconds off my time. And then I think that's where it becomes dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really real ha- having the coaches or other people help them realize like, no, this is your optimal weight. And this is the energy that you need to maintain this performance. And all the other gains that we're going to get are through training in other ways. Right. And then you got to factor in the psychological things that are just going to make everything else worse, really. (laughs) True. Yeah. I I think that's such a good point. But even taking it outside of the sport world, and as you mentioned before, Jared, like Mm -hmm. when you don't have the structure of practice and coaches around you, there are still so many people who are 
taking this on their own to say like, oh, I need to lose this much weight to be able to to look this way or to perform at this level of whatever you're doing just leisurely, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really dangerous. Yeah. I, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to that too. Yeah. Do people have like a base, um, like fundamental, uh, what's the word for it? Like a, a resting weight? I don't know how to describe mm, it. What's the yeah. word for it? Resting metabolic rate. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. just the weight that their body is supposed yeah. to be. Gen- yeah, I'm. Yes, they do. And then generally, you have a typical calorie intake that you should have for that metabolic rate. Mm. So they say the average is around fifteen hundred calories a day. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was training people, I realized really quickly like people don't have a good estimate of how many calories are in things, right? So mm-hmm. it's like I would have people log their their nutrition, and they'd be like, "Oh, I only ate a thousand calories for breakfast." And I'm like, "Okay, well, we need to, f- you know, there are some people who are overeating, for example, right, and have the opposite problem where they're not sure how many calories are in things. But then I think it can become problematic where people, once they learn the calories, they become obsessed, and then they mm-hmm. start trying to dial back and dial back, and all they're thinking about is like reaching this number in order to lose weight. Mm-hmm. So I think there's been a lot, a big movement recently, and would love to know your thoughts too, Barry, of of trying to just focus on eating whole foods, eating until you're like 80% full. I think the Japanese have that Mm -hmm. saying, right? Eating Mm -hmm. until you're 80% Mm -hmm. full, Mm -hmm. eating whole foods, nothing processed. And usually if you're doing that, you're going to be healthier and be at an optimal weight. Mm. Is that called intuitive eating? Yeah, I think something like that. Something like that. Something like whole whole foods is like an example. Um, And then for the listeners out there that have Netflix, there is a really good... uh, (laughs) Uh, short abbreviated series. Uh, I think it was called You Are What You Eat, oh, the, tw- yeah. the twin experiment. Yeah. And so they took identical twins and they gave them both very good diets. It's just one was like an all vegan vegetarian and one also had lots of vegetables in it, but also had some processed meats and processed foods in it. And then they, they measure a whole bunch of uh, health indicators along the way. And uh, I'll, I'll let you watch it to get, get your own insights. But I think the points that some of the scientists were trying to make is like, um, they mentioned some studies saying that like uh, processed foods are like a known carcinogen. So yeah. they, they talk about that a little bit. Um, but then uh, going back to the original point, the people that were in the vegetarian group, some of them were just not keeping up with the calories they needed mm-hmm. because when you're yeah. eliminating a lot of the processed foods and uh, meat products, you're also uh, eliminating a lot of calories. Mm. And if you're just not eating enough, uh, some of the subjects actually they they maintained their body fat, but they lost muscle mass just because. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Nicole's point, like if you're not providing enough uh, calories, not providing enough carbohydrates, not providing enough fat, and now your body is just forced to rely on metabolizing and using up muscle to fuel energy. And that's, that's not a place that you want to be. So two points, one, eating whole nutritious foods is critical Two, getting enough energy is also critical. Mm. Great. This is so uh, useful. Thank you for sharing all this. Um, and, and so I do want to take this in a little uh, bit of a direction that was asked by one of my clients who um, was interested in, you know, training and exercising the differences between uh, male and female bodies, you know, as it, as it pertains to what you might want to be thinking about differently or doing differently. Is there any advice on that? Is there anything just that kind of stands out on the top of your head? Just uh, kind of quick hits there. Yeah, I think this is like an ongoing debate, right? Where like, some people are like, women are not little men. And then other people are like, no, they're the same. So I think mm. there's like, 
different opinions, but I think objectively with the hormones that are in women versus men, they are different and there's going to be different phases that are going on. So if you look at the menstrual cycle, which is typically 28 to 32 days, roughly depends on the person. Um, when you're menstruating that first four to seven days, all your hormones are lowest. Mm. And so that's when you're most similar to a man from that perspective. And mm. so that's why a lot of research studies will only test women during that period wow. when they compare them to men. And that's generally like when people say they're going to train based on the menstrual cycle, they push themselves the hardest during that first week um, when they're menstruating. And they'll do like workouts that will be really high intensity. They'll do stuff that would try to promote um, improvements in performance. And then as estrogen starts to go up and you ovulate, and then after that, your progesterone is going to rise. And progesterone is the one that can make you feel a little bit sleepy. Um, it can throw off your sleep a little bit. You, some women complain they, they don't get as good of sleep leading up to the start of their um, their menstrual uh, their period. And your heart rate's higher and your respiratory rate's higher as well from mm -hmm. progesterone. And so your workouts tend to feel harder. And so it's thought, and there's good research showing this, that during that phase, you should just try to maintain. And so just do things that are, you know, that, that would just keep your exercise um, level the same and not try to push it or go too hard. Not You shouldn't be doing any HIIT activity. Think more like yoga, cardio, et cetera, um, and just kind of maintain the fitness gains that you hopefully got in the beginning of your, of your menstrual cycle. Wow. Fascinating. Um, isn't it also true that the, the, the hips of women are more uh, wide, meaning yeah. that there's more of an angle on the knee? Is that, mm -hmm. is there some research on that? Uh, yes. Uh, scientists call it the Q angle. So women have a little bit wider pelvis. So the theme, the angle between your hip to your knee is a little bit wider uh, whereas men, it's like more vertical, their femurs are more vertically up and down. And so there's uh, biomechanical problems. And it's also possible that when you, you know, combine a cueing, that a steeper cue angle with maybe some muscular imbalances that might predispose women to certain types of injuries. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, there is a, a, the short answer is yes, there's a, a wider hip angle. ACL injuries yeah. are like the main yeah main mm. thing. I was yeah. going to say even like different pronations in your feet can impact yeah. depending on, you know, what your anatomical positioning is. And I think when you're running and doing more intensive exercise, you just have to be mindful of like your gear, your equipment, your form, right? Building up the muscles in the right way. You guys are the experts on this, not me, but that's what I know. <laughs> yeah, they had us uh, back in the day when I was playing soccer, they yeah. had us literally do a box test where they would have us jump off a box because because of that angle, women's knees tend to go in and mm -hmm. that's what causes the ACL. So like if you go up, cause an ACL injury. So if you go up for a header, right, you jump up mm. and then you come down and land if you land with your knees in and someone's next to you could hit you, et cetera. So the athletic trainers would have that just jump off a box, see if your knees go in. If they did, they'd put you on a training program to like work on strengthening wow. the muscles so that you wouldn't have an ACL injury. Um, but I would say very often the women that they flagged ended up with an ACL injury later yeah. in the oh, in wow. the season, sadly. Yeah. So I don't know if they're still doing that test or not. I, I think it, yeah, so yeah. I think it's called the landing error scoring system, the less. <laughs> well, and I go. believe it's okay. still being used yeah. quite often. And uh, in fact, I think the military is okay. investigating whether or not there's yeah. some relevance for soldiers as well. But Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. bring this back to the thing that you said before. And Jerry, you mentioned it's such a shame that a lot of physical education programs in schools are getting like filtered out. Because I would imagine that 
things like that would be so helpful for kids to do, right? Learning more about concussion and the impact of mm. like different um, injuries, especially head injuries, thinking about how your body is shaped and formed and what muscle muscle exercises would be helpful to support you, whether you're going to become an athlete or not. Like just thinking about your body in a certain way would be so important. Posture. So, posture. Yeah. So yeah, Lori's, go, Lori's leaned over on the computer. Yeah. Sometimes I'll say that to him, like he kind of like hunched over oh on the computer. Oh my gosh, so much it can't so. can't be good, yeah. In the science world, grip strength, which yes. is so easy to measure, mm. is such a powerful predictor wow. of, because your grip strength is proportional to the strength of other muscles throughout the body. Mm. And so if you can just bring in somebody and measure grip strength throughout their lifespan, grip strength can predict things like poor function or I could totally be wrong on this, but I think there's been some links also to like mortality, uh, like your grip strength degrades as your grip strength degrades, your risk of death increases. But yeah, I've read read that a little bit. That's great that you mentioned that. Thank you. But like little things like that, I don't think they're doing in physical education programs. Like I hear my students, especially the younger ones are like, oh yeah, we played, uh, you know, dodgeball. I'm like, okay, you're moving your body. It's hopefully fun. More often than not, anxiety provoking for a lot of the kids. <laughs> but, you know, these these simple exercises that would teach us so much about our bodies, mm. I think at a young age would be so important. The only comment that I would add is like, uh, making it like a holistic way of educating somebody, yes. not only about physical activity, but health. Um, so like teaching somebody skills on how to play a sport, that gets them excited. Mm. Making sure people have fun when they play sport, that keeps them to, for, to be a lifelong exerciser. But educating somebody on nutrition and maybe a little bit of exercise physiology, you don't you don't need a PhD on it, but like a lecture or two at certain ways along your lifespan, that can be really powerful to like, just know, like, like Nicole mentioned, working with people in a fitness facility, like knowing it, like how many calories that you need and knowing what, what is the difference between carbohydrate and protein and fat? And like these basic questions that not only does the general public not have, but people that work, some people that work in healthcare also don't have that education. So mm-hmm. I think just that maybe that's just a general plug to say like, teaching people to be lifelong physical exercisers, but also understanding the basic building blocks behind it, I think could go a long way for building a healthier society. That's such a great point. One of the things that I found really fascinating, I was listening to a podcast with with Chris Paul and he's like, you know, when I was younger, I just was so naturally talented. I didn't really think about what I ate and I was eating like all the wrong things. And once I learned about nutrition and he has a really a very intense health journey that he's been on that he talks about. And it's like a lot of elite athletes sometimes have these natural talents and they build up their skills, but they're not thinking about those other components, which I think are so important and Mm -hmm. such a big part of the bigger picture of it all. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, we're going to eventually get to sleep because um, (laughs) Nicole is an incredible expert on sleep and we're, I'm really excited. So I'm going to like slowly segue um, gradually to there. So I'm going to ask you a question that one of my, uh, athlete clients asked, he's a college athlete at a very high level. And he's wondering, you know, these college athletes in particular, um, you know, you can, you can perform at such a high level, um, and have such intensity. It's like such an intense experience. And so what advice would you give about kind of like, uh, kind of letting your body recover from that and, and, um, not stay in that high state, right? You kind of have to like 
travel and like you have this high intensity uh game going on and you have to like show up in class the next day <laughs> or like you have this intense practice and like you know next time you're like you know sitting in a lecture and you're just you know your body is just so activated and so what what can you say about that i'm going to tag on before you guys answer because we also have a lot of clients who are adolescents and young adults who have practices until like eight, nine o'clock yeah. at night. Oh like my God. Yeah. Really yes. like or yes. four or five in the morning, which is unbelievable yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. They, okay. Real quick. <laughs> the high school students I work with, they're like, I'm like, well, like, okay, you get home, you have dinner for like five minutes and then you go to, you got to do your homework and then you go to practice at like 8 PM, you get back mm-hmm. at 10 PM. Then you actually have your real dinner. Yeah. And then you, it's then like, you're awake. Then yeah, you're awake, yeah, then you totally. can't. Then you then, then you need time to have fun because yeah. you didn't have fun all day. <laughs> so you're on the computer doing whatever you're doing, like constant yeah. intensity. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell a couple of stories just to nail the point. Hopefully, uh, so working at New Balance, we get some great speakers along the way, and we we had the senior physiologist at, from the U.S. Olympic Training Center. His wow. name's Randy Wilbur. He came to visit and he talked to our professional runners and our lab staff. And he gave a really great analogy. And he said, uh, if you're trying to grow a garden, exercise is like planting the seed. Mm. Nutrition is like fertilizing the garden. But sleep and recovery is when the garden grows. Mm. So if you're not sleeping and you're not recovering, you can plant all the seeds you want. Mm-hmm. The garden's just not going to grow. Yeah. And maybe another way of saying the same thing is, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous, but exercise doesn't make you perform better. Recovery from exercise mm. makes you perform better. So another way of Preach, that, Barry. <laughs> so like as, as a thought experiment, like Jerry, let's say we measured how high you could jump and you can jump like 24 inches. And then we put you through a really tough workout. Can you jump higher or lower now? At the very, like right when you finish exercising, are you, are you jumping higher or are you jumping lower? Right uh, when you trick question. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess lower because I'm more tired. Exactly. From, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna jump low. Like if I if I measure how high you could jump, I put you through a strenuous workout. You're gonna jump lower. Exercise just made you worse. But if we give you 24, 48, whatever hours to recover, good diet, good sleep, uh, good everything else, now when we remeasure how high you can jump, maybe it's 24.2 inches. So recovery from exercise has made you jump higher. Exercise itself actually just makes you worse. So it just it's just a, a simple, silly little thought experiment to kind of emphasize the point that like recovering from exercise is where the garden grows. That's how you get better. Mm. Two analogies of the garden <laughs> in one episode. <laughs> Let's go. I like it. I like it. Let's go. And by the way, you heard it from Dr. Barry Spearing. More is not always better. Yeah. You said that twice in so many words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to actually double down on that too, because I talk to a lot of college athletes and hear from them and they say that, okay, I'm recovering, but sometimes that means like going out. Like they'll say like, I'm just not exercising. And I think you've already mentioned this before, but you know, that time in between intense exercise needs to be well spent. It needs to be intentional versus just not exercising. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, so, um, Maybe just another, just one study to kind of emphasize what you said. Yeah. There was a study published maybe like 10 or 15 years ago, and it was a bunch of college students in a college one credit class where they strength train. Mm. And so they measured everybody's strength, 
put them through a, a college strength training program for a whole semester, measured everybody's strength at the end, but they also gave them a life survey. And uh, they measured all sorts of aspects of life. And what they found was the students that experienced a high level of self-reported life stress, their strength gains were significantly diminished compared to the students that had low life stress. So I, I use that as just one example to say that like uh, lots of things influence recovery. Uh, Nicole's going to talk about sleep and we, maybe we'll talk about diet. Stress is another thing. Alcohol intake, like all of these things can really draw out what is your recovery pattern and are you really recovering? Mm. Because there's no doubt about it, like recovery, sleep, diet, they all play a big role in whether or not you're going to get better over time. Can I also add in like a little bit of like mindful quiet to like yeah. focus on the quiet of your mind too, to help in that process as yeah. well? Uh, that's what I was going to say is like a, an aid to the athletes who are like amped up all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think like meditation, mindfulness, those kind of things, or like even just focusing on your breath is going to help kind of calm the nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, so that might be a, a good technique. Yeah, last episode we talked about um, being in the present moment. And one of the things I pointed out too is like, sometimes we just need calm people around us. Mm. <laughs> yeah. so like maybe you could develop a community of people. Or just Co-regulation like, is a thing. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have a roommate who's calm. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And by the way, alcohol is really bad for um, <laughs> muscles and exercise, right? And, and recovery <laughs> and sleep. So It's something I actually didn't know about until like, you know, until I learned about it, but... Um, it uh, legit has negative effects, right, on that? So there's one way that scientists, like, try to precisely measure recovery. And so your muscles are made out of proteins. And so when you exercise, if I measure your synthesis or your creation of new muscle proteins, when you exercise, that number goes up because that's your body's way of repairing damage and also making new proteins so your muscles are now stronger and have more mitochondria to fuel cardiovascular exercise. So they use changes in muscle protein synthesis as like a, a metric mm. for how well your body's recovering. Sleep, one night of sleep deprivation diminishes muscle protein synthesis. Mm. Alcohol intake diminishes muscle protein synthesis. Mm. Uh, protein and carbohydrate uh, ingestion after exercise accentuates or elevates muscle protein synthesis. So it helps you recover. Mm. So, uh, all, all that to, to say is those basic things that we all kind of know intuitively, getting a good diet, sleeping enough, avoiding alcohol, those kinds of things. Not only do we intuitively know that they make a difference, but scientifically we can show you that it does make a difference. Thank you. I think there's a, a lot of clients of ours and listeners who will really benefit from hearing that or just as a reminder. I think we all like intuitively know what's good and bad for us, mm -hmm. but sometimes we need that reminder to say yeah okay what's the real quick what's the amount of this is like me just <laughs> geeking out what is the amount of um protein that you need after your exercise because some people will be like you need like your body weight and i'm like that sounds like a lot of protein yeah so i would say as a i'm just gonna say a rough rule of thumb it's not exactly this number but over the course of 24 hours roughly aiming for one gram of protein per gram of body weight wow is about right so if you weigh 150 pounds over the course of a day, getting about 150 grams. Yeah, the number, actual number is 
maybe just a little bit less than that. It might be like 125, but one gram per one pound is just like a good rule of thumb. But protein can come in a number of ways, like glass of milk, 10 grams of protein. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, you just, you know, take a quick peek at uh, um, like the nutrition label or do a quick search. Like if you have one chicken breast, that might be like 30 grams. So that's like a huge chunk just off of that. There's there's vegan sources of protein that that will work, um, beans and things like that, legumes. Um, so there you can get protein from a lot of different food sources, but just making sure that you're roughly getting about a gram per pound of body weight is just a, a rough rule of thumb. Cool, awesome. Okay, anything else about recovery before we move on to the hot topic of sleep? <laughs> I'll get on my end. Okay, all right. Where do we start? What happens when we sleep, Nicole? <laughs> Such a broad question. <laughs> That's an easy one. To a lot of things. Way. Yeah. <laughs> so um, as Barry mentioned, you're going to have muscle repair, recovery, right? Muscle growth. We release hormones like growth hormone that helps in that muscle recovery repair. Um, we also have improvements in our our brain. It's like we have cleaning in our brain that's going to help us. Um, We also consolidate memories. We process emotions. So a lot of different things. um, And it gives our our cardiovascular system a a chance to recover as well. Um, Our metabolic rate is going to go down. um, And our temperature, our body temperature is going to go down as well. Mm, I have a really specific question for you. Sure. (laughs) I went from really broad to really specific. Um, I was talking to my patient about this. She experiences the same thing. How come sometimes I go to sleep and I'm um, cold? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of nice because um, you put the sheets on and you get warmer. Yeah. But later in the morning, like as hours go on, I wake up and I'm hot. What is that? Because <laughs> it wakes me up when I'm hot. That's your circadian rhythm. <laughs> so, really? That, yeah. So that's perfectly normal. So um, when you when you start to go to sleep, you might start to feel cold. Um, and that's because your core temperature is starting to go down. Um, and your hands, basically you're sending blood to your hands and feet. So your body's trying to drop your core temperature even further and melatonin is going to help this but even if they've put people just like even during the day if you stimulate somebody's skin temperature like if you warm their hands and feet you can induce sleep mm. so yeah so there's some really cool stuff going on um and they're kind of tease apart like the impact of skin temperature versus melatonin and core temperature and how they're all related mm-hmm. but your core temperature is going to drop down throughout the night. It's going to be lowest around 4 to 6 a.m., depends on the person. Mm. And then it starts to go up again before you wake up. And that's probably when you start to feel hot. The other thing I'll say with that is in the first half of the night, as your core temperature is dropping, and just so in case nobody knows what core temperature is, it's like the core body temperature around your organs. So it's like that deep internal temperature. Mm. And then skin temperature is like what would be the temperature of your hands, feet, if you were to just put a thermometer against your skin. Um, So in the first half of the night when your core temperature is dropping, that's when you're going to get most of your deep sleep. In the second half of the night, as your body temperature is getting warmer, that's when you get all of your REM sleep. There's a difference in how your body can regulate temperature during those sleep stages. Mm. So in REM sleep, as you probably know, that's when you have more dreaming And if you ever have those dreams where like somebody's chasing you and you can't run and Mm. it's like terrifying, right? You can't get away. And that's because your muscles are paralyzed. Well, what else is essentially paralyzed is your body's ability to regulate temperature. Wow. So you can't sweat as well. You can't um, send blood to the periphery, which is another way we get rid of heat. And so as your body's warming up, if you're already hot from like having extra blankets or your room's warm, you're going to wake up even hotter because you can't regulate your temperature as well during REM. 
Whereas in the first half of the night, if there's temperature fluctuations in your room, you're unlikely to probably wake up from it because your body's able to regulate temperature better. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, where do I go with that? <laughs> well, why don't, you know, you're talking about temperature and sleep, and that's your yeah. your, your big uh, specialty now with Eight Sleep, the company that yeah. you're working for. So, uh, so well, so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how that relates to getting better sleep. I think one of the things our audience definitely wants to learn about is how can we get better sleep. Last uh, two episodes ago, we we met with Dr. Wu, mm. um, who talked about kind of the psychological, some of the physiological aspects of it, but. Tell us about this like temperature aspect and the environment. We didn't talk too much about the environment and setting up our environment to sleep well um, and the physiological aspects of getting better sleep. So maybe, you know, wherever you want to go with that, but very interested to hear from you about this. Yeah, sure. So um, there's a lot of different things that can impact your sleep other than alcohol, exercise, et cetera, right? There's external things. So like you mentioned, the environment of your room. And that can range from the temperature, the humidity. It can also be the CO2. So if mm. people have sleep with their door closed and it's not well ventilated and there's, say, there's two people in the room and there's not a lot of oxygen flow, CO2 levels can increase and that can also lead to more awakening. Um, but generally, there's certain temperatures that are optimal for sleep, right? And, and keeping your room temperature slightly cooler. We've probably heard, you guys have heard about that. Yeah. Generally, hotter temperatures like above 80 Fahrenheit will lead to more sleep disturbances. Um, on the flip side, really cold temperatures aren't as problematic as long as you have like bedding, clothing to put a bunch of layers on. You're generally going to be okay. Um, so it's more those hotter temperatures that will will bother people. Um, Is there something to be yeah. said about like when it's colder in the room, your body has to work harder to keep your core temperature at a certain level? Yeah, yeah. So you can have shivering, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a, a, a way for your body to keep yourself warm. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, you can only shiver when you're in light sleep. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So um, that's only the only way you can essentially keep yourself warm, like the way that your body would normally do it is during light sleep, you could shiver deep in REM. You're not really able to, to do that. So you might wake up too cold, but in deep sleep, you prefer colder temperatures. Is there a way to figure out like what temperature works best? Like what's like the sweet yeah. spot for you, like yeah. an individual to figure out like what temperature it should be for them when they sleep? Yeah. So two things along those lines. One is that women and men prefer the same Temp, like body temperature when mm. they sleep. However, women have slightly cooler skin temperatures than men because they have a lower metabolic rate. And so women, this is why they prefer the room slightly warmer than men and hence a lot of fights between partners. <laughs> of, well, I want the room warmer and the other person wants it colder, right? The, the guy is usually like, I'm sweating. Like yeah, I yeah. can't handle this. And the woman's like, well, I'm freezing. <laughs> so that's why. And that's where like our company's product, they a lot of partners say like this saved our marriage. <laughs> Each side can be programmed separately. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's one of the things. The other thing I'll say is like when you're awake, the temperatures that you prefer are actually a lot cooler than what you need when you're asleep. Mm. And so I think a lot of people get into trouble, and this is true for like our product too. People will like happily set all these like really cold temperatures while they're awake because they're like, oh, this feels great. And your body actually needs temperatures a couple degrees warmer mm. when you're sleeping. And so then they wake up too cold, right? And so kind of think about, it's kind of like thinking about your future self, like when you're going to bed, oh, I actually might want an extra blanket nearby, or I might want something, a different clothing um, than how I'm feeling now. 
That's wow. great. That's a good plug for some of the other episodes we talked about is thinking about your future self, right? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes being too yeah. influent in the moment actually yeah. gets in our way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And with you starting to feel cold before you fall asleep. So that's like a lot of people don't think about with jet lag, but if you've experienced jet lag, often you'll be awake and start to get the chills or you feel cold. Or if you like stay up past your normal bedtime by a couple hours, you start to feel cold. And that's because your core temperature is starting to drop. Wow. So you're not adjusted to that new time zone, right? Your body's still on that old time zone and your core temperature is doing its normal. Like I'm going to go down and then come back up again. And it's on its old time zone. And so when you're on a new time zone, your core temperature is doing its thing. It's dropping down and you're like, I'm freezing. And now I'm really tired actually. And that's your cue to go to sleep. And so that's one of the reasons you feel that coldness. Um, And same thing, if you stay out late or stay up later than normal, you'll start to feel cold. Yeah. Is that similar to the idea of like the consistency in your sleep yep. time, like getting to bed exactly and then why. why your body tends to like wake up at the same time, mm-hmm. even if you don't have yep. to? Yep. Yeah. And that's exactly why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And women tend to have a slightly earlier circadian rhythm, meaning they should go to sleep earlier and wake up earlier than men generally. Um, I see Barry and Jerry mm-hmm. looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> I said generally. Not, yeah, I know. not everyone's I'll take that it. way. I, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm very big on being vulnerable and honest, yeah. especially with my clients and in yeah. these conversations. Everyone's different. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's, it's no secret that I'm, I'm working on my sleep every night. <laughs> it's <laughs> getting better. That's good. Apparently most people in the country are. Not most, yeah. but like a, a large... A good amount. Yeah. Yeah. Good amount. yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So... <laughs> so I think I had another question for one of my um, clients. He said, if you get eight hours of sleep, but you go to bed at different times during the week, does that affect anything? Mm. Question mark. Yeah. Uh, the, the short answer is yes. Right. And so there's the, this, I think in the last two years, maybe a two or three, there's a term called social jet lag where you're up late on the weekends. And so it's almost like you're taking a trip to a new time zone altogether. Mm. Wow. And so your body's trying to adjust, right? Say you stay out till 2 a.m. And now your body's on a new time zone and you're waking up late and then you try to shift it back on Monday morning again. And this gives your body just this crazy, like out of whack feeling, right? Where it's like, I'm used to doing this. This is my rhythm. And it's in every cell of your body, right? And this is same thing's true for night shift workers where they're working maybe four days of the week on a certain schedule. And then the other three days, they're trying to do a normal, like everyone else schedule. And their body is just all out of whack and can't figure Mm. out what time of day it is or what's going on. Does that affect hormones too? And kind of weight gain um, being, yeah, that type of changes like overnight shifts, workers and stuff. Yeah. So it's going to increase, I I get blanking on the hormone itself, but I want to say ghrelin. So it's going to make you hungrier And so people tend to reach for like sugary, more carby foods, and then that can lead to weight gain eventually. And then it also causes other metabolic dysfunction. So there's a big link between lack of sleep or sleep deprivation, like continuous sleep deprivation, obesity, diabetes, all these things are connected. Wow. What would you suggest to folks, you know, like first responders or overnight shift workers to, you know, obviously they don't have too much control over the hours that they are sleeping, but is there anything that they can maybe keep in mind or do differently that might help? Yeah, I think trying to maintain that night shift schedule, even on the days that you're off Mm -hmm. is helpful, but I don't think that's ideal for most people probably because they want to see friends, family, et cetera, on those Mm -hmm. days, but that would help if you maintain that schedule. Um, There's some research showing you could like take a nap before your shift and that would help you be more alert. Um, but other than that, just trying to like 
blackout shades, keep the room quiet, right? Try to just keep a somewhat of as much of a consistent schedule as you can is um, really helpful. And then I think the other thing that is coming out pretty recently is just like food as a cue to your body. And that plays a huge role in circadian rhythm too. Mm. And so there's a lot more studies now on like when you eat and the timing of when you eat and how it stimulates your body or wakes you up or can even shift your circadian rhythm, similar to how light can shift your circadian rhythm. So just being careful about the timing of when you eat before you go to sleep too. Mm. Can you say a little more about that? What Like what should people think about as they're just kind of thinking about these food cues in relation to that? Yeah. So like a lot of times if, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but like, you know, if you eat late at night, it, mm-hmm. it's usually like, it'll prime you and you're kind of like more awake now. Um, versus if you generally people say to not eat two to three hours before mm-hmm. bed, because that kind of allows your body to digest the food. Um, also, I don't know if you've noticed if you have a wearable or anything to track it, you see your heart rate might be higher if you eat right before bed mm. when you go to sleep. Um, and your heart rate will be higher the next day and your body's still trying to digest while doing all these other functions and repair, recovery, et cetera. So it really is beneficial. Um, but yeah, recent research is showing that food is just a really strong cue and part of your circadian rhythm. Yeah. I don't think I ever thought about this until I learned about it. And now I can't not think about it. That like your body is working even when you're not doing anything. So if you're eating too late at night, your body's still working. So it, it prevents you from fully relaxing exactly. and, and getting out of this overstimulated mind. It does the same thing as yeah. your as your stomach and all your organs working together. So, yep. you know, it's it's so fascinating. So thank you for yeah. sharing a little yeah. bit more about that. Yeah, and it sounds like that, you know, we, we talked with Dr. Ru a little bit about like, you know, uh, sleep aids and how it can actually make your sleep quality worse. We don't have to get into that now, but I'm sure that has a lot to do with it, that your body's doing a lot of stuff. in the Sleep aids night. in terms of? Uh, like medications yeah. and, and, and different, yeah. you know, substances people use. Yeah. yeah. Um, that could sometimes um, get you to sleep, but it's not good for sleep quality sometimes. Um, so what else about sleep? I mean, just tell us some fun facts, you know, anything that would be, you know. Uh, tell us something. Some by, by the way, is a, is a warm glass of milk really good? Is that... <laughs> Is, should I unlearn that or is that a real thing? I don't know about that one. Yeah, I don't know if I've seen any papers on that. There, there are studies on, um, so going back to like the temperature side of things, if you if you want um, to kind of stimulate that sleep onset or when you would fall asleep sooner, there are studies showing that if you do like a warm bath or a warm shower mm. before bed, like 30 minutes before bed, um, that you can promote falling asleep faster. So mm. there's things like that that you that you could do. How about like not drinking anything like too late? Because then you have to wake up and use the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's helpful too. <laughs> I have, I don't know if I've seen studies. I haven't tried to look for that, but yeah. Well, actually, sure. it, it will actually relate to some kids with enuresis who who wet the bed mm, in the middle of the night and yeah. they feel so embarrassed and ashamed I by can it. See but that. Sometimes it's like such a simple solution. It could be sometimes yeah. like just don't drink anything um, past 8 p.m. or yeah. 6 p.m. Yeah. I'm going to put a plug in just for, you know, mindfulness practice, whether it is meditation or just trying to find ways to quiet your mind. Like we talked about on the episode with Dr. Wu, you know, giving yourself time and space when you're not laying down to go to sleep yeah, <laughs> to actually let your mind wander and yeah. to kind of release some of this inner tension that sometimes yeah. we hold in our minds. Right. Um, whether it is, and, you know, I'm a big proponent of, you know, make a list before you go to bed, like kind of get all the stuff out of your mind. Yeah. 
onto paper. Don't just think about it, but like release it in some way Mm -hmm. so that you can get to a point where you're not overstimulated, especially cognitively. So like find a way, whatever it might be, (laughs) to be able to just like let it all out. I I love the idea of like taking a bath or a shower at the end of the day. I always say like wash the day away so that you can go into this next portion. It's almost like chapters of your day. And the the ending chapter of your day (laughs) is all about like that release and that calm and that settling your mind and your body to be ready for sleep. Yeah, totally. And there's something to be said about having a routine, right? And Mm -hmm. a lot of, if you talk to a lot of sleep people, they'll say like, make sure you have that routine every night, whether it's even just like, okay, I write stuff down in a journal and get all my thoughts out, right, for 10 minutes. And then I go brush my teeth and then I do this and then I do that. And it's like the same order and it stimulates your, or not stimulates, but it programs you to just say, okay, now it's time for bed. Cool. Absolutely. So we're getting towards the end here. Can you quickly just tell us about uh, sleep eight, you know, just to (laughs) let us know what it actually is? Yeah. So eight sleep is essentially, yeah, no, it's okay. (laughs) Eight sleep is essentially a mattress topper. So it's like a cover, like a fitted sheet that you put over your mattress And each side can be programmed separately. So it heats and cools each side of the bed separately um, throughout the night. And we actually modify the temperature of your bed based on the sleep stage you're in. So kind of like where I was talking about how during deep sleep, you need cooler temperatures and REM sleep, you need warmer temperatures. So we use that principle and then apply circadian rhythm to that as well. Um, And then in addition, we have sensors in the bed that also track your heart rate, heart rate variability, respiratory rate, and your sleep stages. So you, it's kind of like a wearable, but you don't have to wear anything. Let me know if you need uh, another tester. We always do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we always do. Cool. Well, Barry's trying to. Well, I can uh, be a big proponent. I, I definitely noticed it. So. Well, you both are, you know, research scientists, and you're doing research on this, right? And yeah. there's, there's proven effects, which is nice to hear. Not everything, not every uh, product has that type of evidence behind it. Yeah, yeah, and that's what. The, the thing that we notice over and over again, and this is similar to what Barry was saying with exercise. So it's like, if you have the couch potato and the fit person and they both do the same training program, the couch potato is going to see the biggest gains. Mm. And it's the same thing with sleep, with eight sleep. And we see this time and time again, the people with the worst sleep. So really low amounts of deep sleep, really low amounts of REM sleep, low total sleep time. Like they're getting less than seven hours a night. They get on the pod. They're the people that are seeing the biggest improvements mm. in their sleep. Wow. Yeah. So if you already have pretty good sleep, right? It's it's not it, there's only a little bit we can help you, right? But it's if you're if you're struggling then this can really be helpful. Let's just um relish in how genuine that comment was, Nicole. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Just honest. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. You all were incredible in sharing so much of the research, your anecdotal experiences and the work that you've done over the years. But but also being mindful that not everything is for everybody, right? And and it's all about the individual figuring that out. And I think that's the benefit of my work when I work with individuals and you too, Jerry. It's like we we help people to reflect back what's gonna help them most. And to pay attention to that. And I think that's really the message that we have here on the podcast most often is, you know, we can share all of this great advice, all these great strategies, all the research behind everything. But really when it comes down to it, it's so nuanced Mm -hmm. and you really need to just pay attention. Mm -hmm. So if folks that are listening or anyone you encounter is interested in this information, it's like take the information and then take the time to reflect. 
you know, we're not big proponents of sound bites or a list of things to do because it doesn't always work, but really paying attention to what you need, I think is, is the key. So we offer that to you all and we're grateful for you guys joining us today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. And, and by the way, with all the information you, you've gotten, you know, certainly speak to your doctor if you're going to make any big changes um, in terms of your your health, your physical health, and mm-hmm. so forth, and your mental health as well. You know, we don't want this to be a substitute for you know professional advice that you can get from someone who knows you as an individual. To Alexis' point, but we are so grateful for everything yeah. you guys shared. This has been amazing. Yeah, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. <laughs> be well. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to the Read Connected podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas but it is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. If you are in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, local hospital, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, theory, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years but it's not intended to represent opinions of those we work with or who we are affiliated with. The Reconnected podcast is hosted by siblings Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed. Original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. Editing and recording was done by Cybersound Studios. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Reconnected podcast will be releasing new episodes every two weeks each season. So please subscribe for updates and notifications. Feel free to also follow us on Instagram at Read Connected Podcast. That's Read Connect Ed Podcast and Twitter at Read Connect Ed. We are grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meanwhile, be curious, be open, and be well. Mm-hmm.